The Athletic. Hello everybody and once again welcome to The View from the Lane, the world famous Tottenham Hotspur podcast from The Athletic. I'm Danny Kelly and I'm joined on this mailbag edition of the podcast today by Jack Pitbrook and Charlie Eccleshare who will be answering uh, the questions that you sent in via The Athletic itself. Before the Q&A, let's discuss the performance of some of Spurs' players on international duty, Jack. Um, you were there at Wembley to see Harry Kane move yet another goal closer to the England record. Yeah, yeah, he he took his penalty well in the second half to to win the game. I have to say, it was like the the kind of bad old days of England friendlies in the sense that you know before the Nations League existed, in the sense that nobody there was really engaged with the game at all. It was a very sort of low wattage occasion. I thought Switzerland played pretty well as it happens. Uh, it took England a while to to kind of get control of the game. But it was it wasn't a great game. I'm not. I haven't got very high expectations for England against Cote d'Ivoire this evening, uh, because I imagine that Southgate will play an even an even more rotated team. But it was good. For, it was good for Harry to score the penalty, and I'm sure he will. I imagine he'll probably break the um, the goal scoring record before the World Cup. Now that makes sense because they've got several fixtures prior to that, and at his current scoring rate, he is scoring the goals at a rate unmatched by any modern player. Uh, the problem is that he'll be playing against some very very good teams. It's all sort of Germany's and things coming up for England, isn't it? So, uh, and, and he won't he, he won't get to play tonight against the Ivory Coast, for instance. Yeah, it's Germany, Hungary, and Italy in England's Nations League group. So they got four of those games in June, and then another two in September before the World Cup in November. So, yeah, Kane will be playing against a higher caliber of opposition between between now and the World Cup, but I'm sure it'll come at some point this calendar year. He continues to be just fantastic, and uh, and he's going to get. If you had to guess, Charlie, where uh, where will he stop? How many goals will he end up with for England? So how many is he on now? 49, is it? 49, yeah. Yeah. <sighs> That's a really difficult question. We're going, to get, uh, we're going to get into Robbie Keane-style numbers here, aren't we, very soon? Yeah, careful. I mean, so that's, well, essentially 50. He made his England debut in, what, 2015? So, yeah. he's So that's, you know, about, about seven years. Probably got another four minimum, unless Tammy Abraham turns into some kind of monster or something. Possibly even more. So, I mean, he's getting about seven England goals a year. That's incredible. Um, I think that's his 13th since since the new season started. I mean, to be honest, you look at the numbers Ronaldo's posted at international yeah. level. Is, is, it, is it completely ridiculous to say he'll... I mean, a hundred, a hundred's a lot, but... I don't know, another thirty or so. Yeah, I, I mean, was thinking. Wow. I was thinking somewhere between seventy or eighty. Yeah, I, I don't think eighty is impossible. It's an incredible Which, thought in the context of what, however many people have ever played for England, for him to get a score which is would be let's say another fifty. If he gets seventy-five, that would be another fifty percent on top of what anybody else has done, and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people have tried to do this, and most of even like the absolute very best ones. You know, Charlton, Rooney, Shearer, Greaves, etc., have been bunched around. Lineker have been bunched what in the forties, the high forties, and came. To, if Kane is to get seventy-five, which I think he probably will, another fifty percent on top of them. That's incredible. Like statistically, that's in, that's ridiculous. That's like Don Bradman's batting average. It's crazy. 
Yeah, that, I mean, how much do we, I mean? Do we think that's a record that we we won't see broken in the next however many decades, or is it possible that now it, it's more doable to do? D- d- does the current footballing climate make it more hospitable to do that, given the sort of disparity between the good and the bad teams? I I mean, just the fact that you've got Ronaldo doing it does that make it seem like it's more possible? Yeah, I definitely think there are. I agree with that. I definitely think there are factors for, like, structural factors which make it easier to rack up these kind of numbers. One is, you know, professionalization, fitness, etc. People have longer careers. Mm. The other is, if you play international football for a big team, you you are going to be playing a lot of cannon fodder games, ultimately, Mm. uh, against teams that are just much nowhere near as good as you. Which Which makes it easier to rack up those big numbers over the course of a career, I think. I kind of I think that's why I mean obviously Ronaldo and Messi are kind of uniquely talented in themselves, but I also think that the state of the modern game does lend itself towards those kind of those records like that being broken. That doesn't necessarily mean it's automatic that no. if Kane sets a crazy record, it will get beaten and somebody will have to come and do it, which is going to be really hard. Yeah, that's the thing. I mean, even if the conditions are there, you still need a once in a generation player like Harry Kane to come along and take advantage of them. And one of the amazing things about Kane's career in the context of these goal-scoring stats, because he's clearly going to get the England record, he's clearly going to get the Tottenham record, and I imagine that he will probably wind up getting the Premier League record as well. Well, I think, we, yeah, the only one in doubt there is the Spurs one, because that obviously depends on him staying yeah, long right. enough. Um, obviously, if he does, then of course he will. But it, was, it wasn't that long ago that people would often talk about Kane as being a late starter. You know, mm. He didn't play for England until he, until he was, what, 22? He didn't really get into the Tottenham first team until he was 21. So if you compare him to say like Michael Owen was a phenomenal was a phenomenon at seventeen, Wayne Rooney was a phenomenon at sixteen. Like England have had great strikers in the past who was like arrived basically fully formed when in the middle of their teens, and Kane hasn't had that at all. Kane was not a standout teenager especially, and yet his twenties have been so consistent, so good that he's he's effectively caught up and even overtaken guys who had a sort of five year start on him. But I do think it's interesting with that late start thing because I, I sometimes in my head think he started even later than he did because of that late starter narrative. Because he wasn't, I mean, he he turned 21 in the summer of 2014. And obviously then that 14-15 season was when he became, you know, a regular and scored loads of goals. Which, yeah, it's it's not, obviously, it's not, it's, as you say, it's not Rooney, it's not Michael Owen. But it's it's quite, it feels like quite a good sustainable point at which to start. You know, you're not... Because I, I think of someone like Torres as well who came on so late. And Torres and Rooney, it's really interesting. They basically had the first eight years of their career were amazing. Yeah. And then it really tailed off. Um, obviously, other players, the middle eight or the last eight are, what, are what's amazing. Kane's obviously had the, that consistency. I mean, it will be eight years uh, this summer since that summer of 2014, the start of that breakthrough season. But there's... You feel there's no doubt he will just continue to to improve and get better. Let's get on to the questions from the readers of The Athletic then. Mike M says, uh, he's asking us to do a bit of prognostication here. Nine matches left, three points off fourth, Arsenal with one game in hand. How many of the remaining 27 points do Spurs need to finish in the top four? Well, I've, I have taken a look at this. Um... I mean, obviously, the starting point is trying to work out how many points Arsenal will get because that tells you 
that gives them the, the target almost. Are you excluding Manchester United from this race? United are not that far out. I think we have like they are only a point behind Spurs, which does feel like a trick of the mind because they, they just seem like such a ragbag bunch. So yeah, I mean maybe maybe they can find a way of um, picking up. I just I I don't. I, don't, I just don't quite see that happening, especially because they've got really difficult games. I mean, they've still got Arsenal away, Liverpool away, Chelsea at home. So I, I, I don't see it for them. But, but I, I mean, l- looking at it, I think if Spurs get 70 points, they actually will have a very, very good chance. Arsenal have difficult fixtures and I think will end up around the 69-point mark. And actually, it's been a bit lower than that to get fourth over the last few seasons. But I think it will be about that. So so for Spurs to get 70 points, they need 19 points from now, which is basically six wins and a draw and two defeats from their last nine games, which put like that, I think sounds eminently doable. And yes, obviously, United may go on a run that makes that, that makes the battle between Arsenal and Spurs redundant. I don't quite think they will, given those fixtures. So I think if Spurs get to 70 points, I would back them to get top four. And looking at the game, that would mean they could afford two defeats in a draw. Liverpool away, you would you would say you'd expect them to lose. Other than that, I don't... That, you know, they've got Newcastle at home. I think that's a win. Uh, Villa away, that could be the draw. I don't think that's an easy game. Brighton at home, I'd expect them to win. Brentford away, I know there'll be Ericsson and, and Brentford, you know, can... Uh, can be tricky, but I think you know that, that, that's a game I'd expect Spurs to win. Leicester at home, well, that depends a little bit on whether Leicester is still in the Conference League, because if they are, I think that game will come in between the two semi-final legs, and it appears, understandably, that the Conference League is very much Leicester's priority. So I think that would be very handy for Spurs if Leicester do beat PSV and kind of have to manage that. Then mentioned Liverpool away, I think they'll lose. Burnley at home, I'd expect them to win, and Norwich away. I mean, but the, their last two games could be against two relegated te- already relegated teams. So yeah, I, I think I I don't think obviously, you know, to an extent, spoiler, this is pointless because had we gone through Southampton at home and Wolves at home, I'd have said, yep, six points, move on. Yeah. Um, but I think there's enough. Well, I guess the point is there. There's enough wiggle room. We're, I'm not saying I think they'll win every game. You know, I think they can lose to. They won't. Yeah, which of course <laughs> they won't. Uh, but they also have these spare midweeks, which will be you know, a few a huge benefit. But yeah, I think I think around seventy points will will do it. Jack, it maybe because I grew up in the shadow of the Death Star uh, on Holloway Road, this conversation really and thanks to Mike M for the question, this conversation really comes down to they have to win the North London Derby. Because otherwise all this careful bistramatics is going to go out the window. Yes, that's sorry, that that was the missing game because that's not scheduled yet. Yeah. Yeah, they, I mean, obviously they will need to win that. But the problem is that I gather that's most likely to be around sort of 10th, 11th of May, which is the penultimate week of the season. And Tottenham need to go into that with that being a live game. I have to say, I think Tottenham will need more points than Charlie thinks to get it. I think they'll have to get into the 70s, which would make this quite a rare season because normally we don't have a, a battle for fourth this quality. But if you look like, I mean, Arsenal are averaging, what, 1.93 points per game so far this season. For them to drop off and wind up in the 60s by the end of the season that would mean quite a big drop off from them yeah I just looking at it so I think you you could make an argument say they'll get 15 points from their 10 games which as you say would be a massive drop off but Palace away that's not an easy game Brighton at home I think they'll win Southampton away 
not easy. That's a game Spurs drop points and Chelsea away. You'd expect Arsenal to lose that. Their record against the top four has been awful this season. Mm-hmm. Arsenal, they've lost every game um, and only scored in one of those games. They've got United at home. Well, that's one of, you know, United showed against Spurs that for all their lacking coherence, they can turn it on. West Ham away is very hard. Obviously, Spurs away. Then they have Leeds at home, Newcastle away, and Everton at home, which is a, a more gentle finish. Newcastle away is tough, potentially. So I can see them dropping quite a lot of points. Although, if you know, we're talking about their point, their average points per game for the season. That's one thing. Their points per game since the turn of the year suggests that they would have to have a calamitous reverse in form. I, I understand that they've got some difficult fixtures there. I think since the turn of the year, they've been as good as anybody, haven't they, in terms of gather, hoovering up points? Yeah, well, going even further back, since December uh, 11th, when they beat Southampton at home, their form has been, has basically been at sort of City, uh, Liverpool levels. But they have they, that, that has taken in a much softer group of fixtures than what they have. Yeah, it, it just depends how, how much of a difference that makes, I guess. Let me just go around the table, and all three of us still still have to answer the question. Charlie, do you think Spurs will finish fourth? At this, it's a long way out. I grant you to make that decision. Well, I've been saying they will throughout, yeah. and I'm, I'll I'll stick by that. They have a huge advantage with the manager they have in relation to their rivals for that position. Obviously, Arteta is doing a really good job at the moment, but doesn't have the same experience as Conte, uh, Ranić. I mean. You know, we, we, we don't really know yet what to make of him, though. Interestingly, was told yesterday that um, Ranić and Conte's points per game uh, is the same since taking over their respective clubs, which I thought was quite interesting. Um, United have had some quite uh, soft fixtures in that time. But yes, I, I do think Spurs will just nick it. I, I Even after games they've lost, I've said that. Taken quite a lot of flack for that, not least from, from James Moore. But yeah, no, I think they will. What's James's problem with you having an opinion, Charlie? That it's not the same as his, Ah. I think. (laughs) Jack, what about you? Uh, I don't think Spurs will have enough. I just think Arsenal have got, I think that that tiny cushion that Arsenal now have, uh, owing to Spurs, A, Arsenal's improvement, and B, Spurs losing games they should have won, not least Burnley, Man United, Wolves and Saints. I think that will prove fatal, uh, unfortunately. I actually think Spurs... I think Spurs and Arsenal are both playing really well at the moment. I think both teams are actually quite a lot better than I thought they would be a few months ago. But I think for Spurs to do it, they would need to be basically perfect on the run-in, which I think is possible. And they would need Arsenal to have a medium-sized wobble, which I think is unlikely. Can I just say one other thing? It is quite funny with the narrative of, it's the top four race, no one wants to win. Spurs have won four of the last five. Arsenal have won six of the last seven. Chelsea have won their last five. So I think we can kind of put that to bed. And and we're saying uh, that it's going to be a much higher points yeah. points for fourth than has been the last few years. Both teams could finish on like... It's totally plausible that both teams could finish on 72, 73, yeah. 74 points. And that's really rare. I, 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 think it, I think right now, this is actually a high quality race of fourth, even if people don't realise it. Arsenal have played some lovely football in the past few months. Um Spurs have well, they've played really well in the last few games, I grant you. I think they've been finding a way. And that's why I don't think Manchester United are definitely out of it, because I think it's been, uh, it's, been, uh, it's been really, really quite unusual season in England. Um, and well, I, I've got to give my opinion too, and I'm afraid I share Jack's view, that uh, the, 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 the games, and it's, it's wrong to say they should have won, because the Premier League's not like that. The games where they might have won, and haven't done so may come back to haunt them. I, I sincerely hope I'm wrong. Um, Matt L, 
um, has a question for us. And thank you for both of you for answering that. This one, these next few questions are a little bit not. I would not use the word lightweight, but but less requiring calculus and algebra. <laughs> uh, hi, Jack. Less math, math. Hi, Jack and Charlie. I feel Spurs um, uh, could have could have spent the last few years signing the uh, best and most exciting players in the EFL, but because of our reputation as a big club, and that's in inverted commas, they don't. Um, am I right? Is there too much pride, especially when it comes to players below the Premier League in England? Spurs missed out on exciting players like Eze, Olisse, Madison, Grealish, Tony, Watkins and Bowen. He, he goes on to say, Jack, uh, is there a, a Spurs in particular, a kind of uh, sniffiness about players from the, the lower leagues? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. This because I don't, I don't instinctively, I don't instantly know what the reason for this is. Tottenham, you know, I remember after they signed Deli Alley, they were very keen to go and find the next Deli Alley. And so if you think of the young players who were coming through the football league at that point, I think the two big superstars were James Madison and Adam Lookman, who are both now at Leicester City. Madison obviously started off at Cov, and Lookman started off around the corner from me at Charlton Athletic. And I think Tottenham were interested in both of them, and really interested in Madison. But it didn't, they couldn't quite get them over the line. But since then, it's not really, I've not got the impression it's been on their radar so much. Obviously, Alfie Devine coming in from Wigan Athletic is one that's slightly different because he was so young when they got him. He wasn't like an established football Mm. league player like Lookman and Madison were. So I don't know. I don't know why it's changed. One, one, One idea would be the fact that as Tottenham have got better, they're recruiting players who are there to improve the first team in the moment rather than being necessarily someone for five years down the line that they haven't really done that much recruitment and certainly when you get in Mourinho, Nuno and Conte these are kind of these are not rebuild managers at all they're managers to win now so maybe because of those guys coming in there's been less of an interest in signing an 18 year old from the championship rather than just getting someone to make the first team better next week. Yeah, yeah, this is really interesting. It brings up a lot of issues. I mean, some of these other players as well, like Watkins was someone that they looked at um, and there was a lot of frustration, if you remember, in the summer of 2020 when he went to Villa because he felt to a lot of supporters as the perfect uh, Kane backup. Obviously, Grealish, they were after, didn't offer the, the requisite amount. We shouldn't forget as well that Jack Clark was this kind of signing. Um, mm-hmm. You know, they, they brought him in in the summer of 2019 and one theory uh, that was that's been offered while I was doing the piece on Jack Clark was that having missed out on Grealish, they really didn't want to miss out on another really exciting young talent who had impressed, though not to the level of some... Of, and that's what's interesting actually about Clark relative to some of these names mentioned, that he, he'd he been good and, and had lots of cameos, but hadn't started many games and hadn't torn up the championship in the way that uh, some of these guys had. It, it, it's, it's a really interesting one as well because you look at a team like Liverpool and I think it's amazing, you know, signings like Vinaldum, they, they weren't EFL players. He wasn't an EFL player, but he was start, He was a championship player at that point. He'd just been relegated. Andy Robertson was the same with Hull, Aaron Ramsdale for Arsenal this season. And I think, I think, I think the sniffiness, it is interesting because I do think fans often are a bit like, well, why, why are we you know, a big six Premier League club signing a player who's either just been relegated and therefore wasn't good enough for the Premier League or is kind of knocking around in, in the lower leagues. And also, the, Jack mentioned Deli Alley, and that is significant because that was a kind of exception that, you know, Spurs always wanted to develop young players from within. He came along and was this, you know, generational talent they thought they had to um, they had to go after, but they didn't want that to become a kind of club policy and obviously yeah Divine is, is another exception and there were circumstances there because Wigan desperately desperately needed the money but it, it is it is an area that you know there are 
there are a lot of gems to be unearthed there. Mattel, I think you might have pressed on something there that there's at big football clubs, whether they are football clubs or as Louis van Gaal described Manchester United over the weekend, a commercial club, Mm. there is so much stuff going on all the time. Otherwise, people like Jack and Charlie um, would be out of their fantastically lucrative livings. There's so much stuff going on that I do think that the you know something has to give sometimes, and I think the in tray where it says make sure we get the best players out of the championship in League One, it, it gets ignored. I mean, we should say as well. I'm sure I mentioned Jack Clark. I'm sure there are other examples as well where it doesn't quite work out. I mean, the the way the thing with player recruitment is, it's not as straightforward. At, you know that there aren't always. What what tends to happen with player recruitment is that a club does something, and then other clubs copy it. So. One player will have success with South American players. Now they'll mm-hmm. think, ah, that's the solution. We'll go after lots of South American players or, you know, French players when Arsene Wenger came in. Then lots of clubs were like, ah, okay, Claire we Fontaine, need to assign French players. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Or bring in a French manager. That will be the solution. It doesn't matter. He's not very good. Um, or doesn't speak English at all. Yeah, well, exactly. So I think, yeah, it's a... What, what's key as well with all... I always think this with recruitment is, is being proactive and being inventive with your thinking and not just of copying what other clubs are doing um but it's certainly it's certainly not an area that should be dismissed because uh, yeah there are lots of very very talented and hungry players to be um to be mined from those leagues listen thank you that was a i mean that was a really really interesting question and when i look at uh, the list of players that matt produced there you think oh god even two of those would improve spurs squad I love the next question from Tim B because it'll give all of us with a, you know, only one of us is an actual Spurs fan, but uh, the other two of you spent a great deal of time in and around Spurs. So this is a chance for, we might get some different views here. Uh, Tim B asks, um, which games covering Spurs at White Hart Lane or the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium have you experienced the best and worst atmospheres? The best atmospheres, so I've got Three at the old White Hart Lane, one at the new one in my head. Great. The three at the old one, I've gone for the 2-1 win against Arsenal in February 2015 with the Harry Kane header at the end, which kind of blew off the roof. It was so loud when he scored that. Then I'd go for two of the games from the final season at White Hart Lane, uh, specifically the 2-0 win against Arsenal and then the 2-1 win against Manchester United, which were just a few weeks apart. I think probably I think they would have been the last two Tottenham games at White Hart Lane, which were both amazing because Tottenham were on such a roll then, even though they weren't going to win the title. And then the one I picked from the new ground, I've gone for the first leg against Manchester City in the Champions League in 2019, where Tottenham won one 0 which I think was probably the last great Pochettino performance. It's actually a much better performance than. The second leg against City, the second leg against Ajax. You know, they played like a Pochettino team and really, even though City missed a pen, they, I think they did kind of dominate City physically in that game. So that, and it was just such, so amazing because not only was it an incredible high point of the Pochettino era, you know, playing this, a game with a statue, it was also what, the third game, I think second game at the new stadium. Um, and so there was that sense of novelty to it as well. And it just felt, felt like the start of something, although in reality it was kind of, you know, coming up to the end of something instead. Um, so yeah, those are the four that I've gone for. Fascinating, absolutely fascinating. What have you got, Charlie? Well, I'll, I'll go with my best is actually that, that from the new stadium uh, was the first game of the Nuno Espirito Santo era, the brave new world. Um, beat City 1-0 on the opening day of the season uh, in what feels a lifetime ago in August 2021. And there was a lot 
in this because it was obviously it was the first proper game with fans in for such a long time. I mean, there'd been smattering of supporters and there'd been fans in for a friendly the previous week against Arsenal, but it was the first full house at the new stadium since March 2020. So a f- almost 18 months previous. And there was such a, fe- a kind of redemptive feeling. Um, and obviously, to w- you know, the start of the new season is always so exciting. But in that context and beating this great City team who... Of course, you know, it was off the back of the Euros and there were a couple of players missing. And there was also the backdrop of the Harry Kane saga for Spurs. And so there was loads going on. It had been such a... The summer had been so miserable with the managerial appointment with Kane. The previous competitive game at the stadium had been the protests against Levy and the Super League with that miserable two undefeat to Aston Villa. So it just... There was something so uplifting uh, and redemptive about that day. And then worst... I mean, unfortunately, at the new stadium, there are more. There have been a few quite toxic atmospheres. Um, I think the worst was the, um, this, and it's mad things. This is only a couple of months later. Was the def- the home three 0 defeat to Manchester United when, again, the songs about Levy um, and the board and all of that came out, and it, it just felt like the culmination of years and years of simmering frustration uh, all came to the boil. And it was, and, and and you felt, I mean, Nuno was just so hopelessly out of his depth, stood on the touchline kind of pathetically watching on. In my head, the rain was falling. I don't know if that's it, pathetic. It, 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 I think I've it was invented. only falling on him personally. Yeah. <laughs> sort of Truman Show style. <laughs> um, yeah. And it, it just, Oh, it was so so bleak. That substitute, the Mora Bergvine substitution. But you're you're pressing on something of... about modern football there, aren't you? And that is that the how quickly it changes, you know, and also that the toxicity comes when the t- the fans turn their attention from the team on the pitch to the people in the boardroom. We saw it at Arsenal. Mm. We've seen it at Manchester United. If you really want to make the crowd poisonous, then it's when yeah. they start organising against the owners because there's a kind of helplessness about that. I suspect. Um, a, a kind of tilting at a windmill that you know that you're not going to defeat. And it's the, it's the, the pain of modern football fans. They know so much yeah. about the game. Everybody knows so much more about the game than they used to, but have so little power over it. that I think there's a real, that's where the, the real horrible kind of pus comes out in these crowds when they start to get into a, into a bad place. That's a really good point. And I also think there's an abstract, you, m- most people, there's a bit of a check on a check on them of, outrightly abusing an individual in front of them who deep down you do kind of know is trying their best like yes we can tell ourselves that the players don't care they're not Can't trying take a but corner, as, as my, my refrain goes yeah <laughs> it were exactly all of that stuff but we most people feel a bit bad just like abusing a 20 year old you know man child really you know it's just not really that appropriate behavior but there's an abstract we don't know that most board members are shadowy figures who it's very easy to characterize in our heads as these just rich, yeah, anonymous individuals who don't care like we do. And you can just absolutely unleash because it feels like they're sort of faceless individuals. So why wouldn't I? And the other one just on the downer is more one in retrospect was the last uh, Pochettino game ever, not that we knew at the time, the home draw against Sheffield United. And that was a miserable day. I remember it was pouring with rain. There were lengthy VAR checks. It was just, it was bleak. And then when you look back, it's just sad because you're like, oh, that was not a, a fitting way for, for yeah. the watch to go out. 
another game. And again, I'm relying on you, Charlie, to tell me this is this is the best atmosphere. Was um, a second leg uh, of a, a League Cup semi final when they beat Arsenal. Was it five one? Yeah. January 2008. Absolute mad, jumping, popping game where in one of those days where everything the home team does miraculously works. Odd people score. People who normally can't play more than a three-yard pass start passing the ball like Beckenbauer. And it it just... You got you, you rarely get into a comfort zone in the semi-final. You rarely get into a comfort zone in North London derby and suddenly had the two things here together. Um, and I can remember sitting with the two uh, people I used to go with, and uh, uh, I turned to them, and they they were they giggling and laughing about how great it was. Was it was it was extraordinary? Well, also that was it was nine years since Spurs had been, beaten Arsenal, and they had so many near misses in that time, and they should they really should have won the first leg, which ended in a one-one draw. And I, and I remember after the first leg, Arsenal escaped with a draw. I think it was Walcott who scored the equaliser, mm. and it felt like oh, it's happened yes. again. And the previous season as well. Arsenal had knocked Spurs out of yep. the League Cup semi-final. And it was like, oh, we've blown our chance. And then, and Arsenal were top of the league. Arsenal were flying. No, everything um, about it was amazing. It was so similar to the 2002 semi-final where Spurs beat Chelsea 5-1 and ended an even longer hoodoo. That was in 2002 and they hadn't beaten them for, I think it was 11 years or 12 years maybe at that point. And again, just one of those days that everything went right and, yeah, just absolutely smashed them. So League Cup semi-finals. Yeah, so. that, that seems to be one of the ways to go. Uh, Charlie, now, now that I've appointed you official uh, curator of my memory, mm. that game against Arsenal, did, did Kevin Prince Boateng play well? Have I got a right conflate that from another football match? No, I think that's right. Oh! I think that's right, yeah. <laughs> that was his he- good game for Spurs. Yeah, it was. I mean, also, you're, you're, the fact that you've picked two games from the 07-08 season confirms my hypothesis based on the retrospective I did on West Ham 3, Spurs 4 from March 2007, that 2007 was around when football peaked, or Premier League football peaked anyway. I just think it was, it was such a good period. It was that perfect. It, it was professional enough that the standard was really good. But it hadn't become too glistening and sheeny. You know, you could still have players. I was talking to James about this yesterday. You could still have players like Jimmy Bullard and David Bentley in a league with Cristiano Ronaldo. It's just this amazing sweet spot. And I, I, I may have said this to you before, Charlie. I suspect that's because of the age you were. Um, where, oh yeah, where you're, you're absolutely. Teenagers are so sensitive uh, to the now, and uh, I would have been um, that age that you you were then at about 1971, 72, 73. And of course, that was a golden era of defensive clogging, terrible pitch, <laughs> brutality English football, which I absolutely adored. Um, mm. One more then um, in terms of atmosphere. Uh, of course, you mentioned, Jack, and you're right to mention the last day of the old White Hart Lane. Um, I had an amazing day. Um, uh, Talksport, bless them, said, well, why don't you go along? Um, Alex Crook was doing the commentary on the game. It was, it was the live commentary and do it from the radio box for us. And we were on air for like five hours in total. Um, so you had that amazing build-up in the rain where uh, the, the old players came out onto the pitch, some of them of sort of 50 year of age, lumbering on, superbly upholstered. Others, nearing their, their, their 80s, like Cliff Jones, sprinting onto the pitch. And Cliff, if you're listening, and I'm sure you are, um, get well soon from that self-inflicted golf injury. Did you see the picture of Cliff? He's got mm, stitches yeah. above his eye um, from playing golf in, in the garden. But watching that game, it, of course, Spurs had been unbeaten in the season. It was a kind of important to me. I don't suppose anyone else in the world cared that they did go for the final season unbeaten. And 
I was in the perfect place, if not to see the corner flags, to see that rainbow when the rain stopped mm. and that rainbow arced across the North London sky. I don't know how rainbows worked. It may have been in other skies as well. I, I grant you that. Um, and you just think, oh, God, sometimes it's blinking game, isn't it? You know, It is as though um, whatever God you worship is actually looking down personally on this football match. Um, I must say, uh, once the rainbow appeared, I had very little doubt that Spurs were going to win. And one last point about this and about the last day at White Hart Lane, I was being produced on the radio at the time by a bloke whose name I shall not repeat here, who was apoplectic, absolutely opposed to the dis- dismantling of the old stadium and the building of the new one. And, uh, you know, he's normally a pretty sensible, if slightly pessimistic Spurs fan. And eventually one day I confronted him. And again, I won't use his name, Mr. X, why are you so, so nuts about this? You're not a nutty person. And he leaned forward and very quietly said to me, my dad's ashes are on the pitch. And you forget what football clubs mm. mean to people. Something different through mm. each the prism of each person's experience. I want to thank uh, uh, the, the, uh, Tim there for that question. We'll take a quick break. We'll come back. We'll try and answer very quickly one or two more of your questions here on a special edition of the View from the Lane podcast. Welcome back to the View from the Lane uh, podcast. Me, Danny Kelly, Jack Pitbrook, and Charlie Eccleshare. Um, I'd like to say this is the second half of the podcast, but such has been our pontificating about the various questions already asked that we might be heading towards the finishing line pretty quickly. But I promise you, in the next podcast, in a few days' time, we'll return to some of the questions because they're all brilliant that we've been asked by the subscribers to The Athletic. Let's, uh, let's get the last one on here, though. This is good fun. Sean. Uh, says, I'm currently reading Luka Modric's autobiography. If you took a player's career as a whole, not just how they did at Spurs, is he the best player we've had in the EPL era? If not, who is? Bale and Klinsman, he says, for me, are the other contenders. What does your planet-sized brain have to say about this, Jack? Off the top of my head, and this might be complete bollocks, Mm -hmm. I would have Modric first before I would come to Bale and then probably Kane. I think in the in terms of the whole career of people who played for Tottenham in the Premier League era, I think that you know Modric's obviously won a, what four Champions Leagues at Real Madrid. He's got his team to World Cup final. He's won a Ballon d'Or. He has, and while you know you can look at Bale and say, well, Bale's won those Champions Leagues. Bale's dragged Wales to the semis of a Euros and then a subsequent Euros, and this is a team which you know less football pedigree in recent years than Croatia, it should be said, and maybe even to another World Cup, but. I just think comparing Bale and Modric, I just obviously, you know, they're very different types of player, but I think Bale is more about the kind of spectacular comic book, big game, one-off mega moment where he does, he scores some ludicrous PlayStation goal when it matters most. But he's not, he's not a guy for playing to an incredibly high standard every week, whereas Modric has played to an incredibly high standard every week or twice a week for the last like 14 years which is crazy. Like that's it, He is an unbelievably consistent player, as well as being a guy for the big games and a guy who's won things for his club. He's done incredible things for his country. He's probably Croatia's greatest ever footballer. And so I would have Modric, top, and then Bale, and then probably Kane, who I think would have to lose out by virtue of not having those kind of big game moments and trophies that the other two have. Yeah, I think Modric is hard to argue with because he'll he'll go down as one of the best players of this generation. What he's achieved is absolutely incredible. And as Jack says, the consistency with which he's done that. I mean, he's he's the guy, the only guy really, you know, he was the guy to break the 
Ronaldo Messi duopoly, wasn't mm. he, in Ballon d'Or terms? What one other name, and this is. I'm sure massive recency bias because I happened whilst working at the Athletic yesterday to see out of the corner of my eye they were showing the best goals ever in the Premier League by Teddy Sheringham. But which might sound like a bit of a ludicrous shout, but what Teddy Sheringham did, I mean, he when he went to United, age 31, which is crazy that he was that old when he went. He went and won the treble. He won three Premier League titles. He won, if I'm not mistaken, either the PFA or the Writers Player of the Year in 2001. I mean, he was an unbelievably good player. Really, what like, and you do, th- and it was interesting hearing him uh, on Monday Night Football the other week talking about, you know, was it a hard decision to leave Spurs? And in a very Teddy Sheringham way, he was like, no, not at all. It was a really easy decision. I mean, oh, he's, he, a, he na- went- he's a gnarly individual, Ted, isn't yeah. he? Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, he went. If you, he went and joined you, he was the replacement for Eric Cantona. I mean, that tells you how good he was and what Sir Alex Ferguson thought about him. I think we, and obviously, you know, we think back to Euro 96 and how good he was there. Um, I mean, let's be truthful, Charlie. He was still a good player when he got back to Spurs, having been rinsed well, by Manchester yeah. United. Exactly. He, and this is, James, you know, James's point is, uh, you know, Kane can leave, leave the United or City when he's 31 and, and still win everything and then come back. I, I don't think you could put Sheringham above Bale, Modric uh, or Kane, but I think he's worth considering. I, th- I think his, he is one of those players who we, we sometimes forget just how good he was. And he was, he was really outstanding. And Danny, where would you fit Klinsman into this? Because he's yeah, won a World Cup... Scored scored goals yeah. all over Europe in lots of different leagues. Uh, also, a great bloke, which accounts for something in my book. An absolutely great bloke, um, Jürgen Klinsmann. The, the few times I, I've spent some time with him, um, look. In some ways, it was the you know Sean's question is very carefully uh, set to trap us. In. It can only be the answer can only be Modric then Bale. The way the question is set. But, you know, when Jürgen Klinsmann came to Spurs, that the excitement, I can't think of another, you can help me here, another actual signing where people, not only who supported the club, but people who outside just went, oh my God, Jürgen Klinsmann's gone to Spurs. And of course, the first few games he played, it was clear that he was a level above, because uh, again, Charlie will recognise this was the Premier League where not everybody was quite a superstar. Look, Klinsmann is one of the, great footballers of modern times and he played for Spurs but I think because of those four Champions Leagues you'd have to you'd have to say that Modric and he's been the more consistent of the two Bale perhaps the more explosive I'm just using other words to explain what you've already said there's a there's a part of me that wants to say that Robbie Keane's nearly 70 goals for the Republic of Ireland with my heart I'm, but I'd say you know that that's a pretty good achievement <laughs> playing virtually on your own for 15 years up front in an average team. And, um, <laughs> you know, he, he's still looking down at Harry Kane going, 49H, that's not a lot of international goals, is it, mate? That is not really. A, get your finger out, he, he's probably saying as well. I'm slightly reluctant to say this, but is there a case to be made, not 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 the top, but maybe in the top 10 here for Saul Campbell? Saul Campbell was a great player. I know Spurs fans have their reasons for hating him and that's all part of football, but Charlie, what do you think? I mean, he he was unbelievable, and and actually, like thinking about the impact Klinsman made in in a very different way. But it's it's very rare you see, for a signing to be made for a player who is. I mean, he he actually he had a slightly slow start to his Arsenal career, but then he won the double in his first season, and he was so quickly. I mean, I knew 
so many of my my fans were Spurs, friends were Spurs fans and still are. And the way they talked about Sol Campbell before he left, it was genuinely in awe. I mean, I've I've rarely heard players talked about in that way before or since. I mean, he was a phenomenon, really. And yeah, then but then you look at what he achieved. I mean, he 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 was the final piece in that that second double winning team uh, that then obviously went on and finished the season unbeaten two years after that. Uh, and he was, you know, he, he was one of the few players at that time who seemed to play as well for England as he did for his club. Um, he was the kind of Ashley Cole of his, <laughs> you know, the slightly earlier period. I know he did overlap with Cole as well, but he'd always come away from big tournaments yeah. with his reputation enhanced, which was very was brilliant. Rare. 2002 World Cup. Oh, yeah. I should have, yeah. should have had really the winner against place, Argentina, yeah. you know, yeah. but for a weird refereeing decision. Exactly. Uh, look, Sol, Sol was a fantastic player for Spurs. What he decided to do and how he decided to do it, you could argue was a, either ill-advised or very badly managed in, in the modern world. Of course, he couldn't just turn around and say, um, I'm, I'm going to run down my contract and go and sign for Arsenal. I can remember distinctly, I was working on Football 365, which we were just getting going at that time, and somebody came in and said, just the phrase, Sol Campbell has signed for Arsenal. I had expected him to be signing that day for Barcelona. And for only the second time in my entire life, I, I can remember trying to form words, but nothing coming out of my mouth. I was just gulping air like a fish. It was heartbreaking. And uh, I'm, I'm not, I'm, you know, I'm not supposed, I'm supposed to say, oh, well, you know, things, people will come and go. I was heartbroken because he was so associated in my mind uh, with Tottenham. I had... My Sporting Life documentary series I made, I spent three hours with him in, a, in just the two of us in a, in, a, in a darkened room talking about his life. And there'd been a lot of build-up to this because I'd put it out on Twitter that I was doing it. Spurs fans saying, right, go on, tear him a new one, etc. I had no intention of doing that. I wanted to hear his side of things. And I, I don't think this is wishful thinking. I don't think he regrets going to, going to Arsenal. I think he deeply regrets the effect he's had on on his relationship with Spurs fans. You can see it in his eyes when he talks about it. I don't know what he thought was going to happen, but you could see and the way he spoke that uh, he would really wish that the Spurs fans thought better of him. I remember um, his agent rang me after it. Sky uh, Andrew yeah, rang me and said, Dan, um, what do you make about this? And, um, and I think because we'd done a lot of work together, various things over the years, and Sky uh, expected me to say, well, these things happen in football. And I remember saying to Sky, you can tell Sol that I personally will never, ever forgive him. And I've gone way past that now, but the bitterness still lingers in one way. And um, when I'm playing football manager, you get your squad together, I never have a number 23. <laughs> <laughs> I'd, rather have a th I'd rather have a 13 yeah. than a 23, and I'd rather have one player missing from the squad. I never have a 23. You've done the like reverse retiring of a shirt. Normally that's done in honor. This is a, a dishonor. I mean, we should we should say for, for our younger mm. listeners. Long time it was ago now, yeah. Twenty one years yeah. ago. A lot of this is where we I mean it, it was, was seismic. It's hard to that's say the, how seismic it felt. It it was I remember it was the last day of school of that school year, and it was just unbelievable. I mean, it's it it's not that different from Harry Kane joining Arsenal this summer. I mean it it. For free, yeah, right, yeah. yeah. Running down it in Can two you years' imagine? time, yeah. Harry Kane runs down his contract and joins us. Having having told Spurs I mean, for it, eighteen months prior to that that he ever, you know, he was looking forward to discussing the new contract and all the rest of it. I can't think of another transfer in English football. Someone help me. Where you just go, what what happened there? You know, 
And the very, and I say, the fact that a grown, possibly overgrown man is still um, omitting 23s from his football manager's squads. Um, <laughs> and also, you know, when I, when I, during the, the football equivalent of counting sleep, sheeps, trying myself to go to sleep, you know, when you think of who are the best 20, you know, squad of 23, Spurs players, oh, sometimes it's the Premier League, sometimes my lifetime. I noticed Sol Campbell should be one of the four centre-halves. He never is. Just be, because of <laughs> one sin, one terrible, terrible sin. It was also, as far as I remember, completely unrumoured. Absolutely. Like it might just be because I was, it, what, 13? He was going so to Barcelona. I don't remember the, 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 it. The, the, the yeah. talks had broken. I remember thinking Inter Milan for some reason. I well, I think, in my well, head. I, I know, of course, I was keeping an, an eye on this. I had a whole, you know, team of journalists working for me at 365. And I was kind of popping my head outside the office door every 15 minutes. And he knew it was about Campbell. And it was all he was going to sign. I mean, even the idea he was going to sign for Barcelona was just a rumour. They kept this, I mean, you can understand why now, completely under the radar. It was amazing. Well, I remember actually on the <clears throat> the final weekend of the La Liga, of the La, La Liga? Do we say La Liga, the La Liga yeah. or do we say the final weekend of La Liga season? Uh, Barcelona played, I think it was Valencia, and Barca needed to win to qualify for the Champions League. And if it was the game where Rivaldo scored a hat-trick, the winner being this ludicrous kind of overhead scissor kick style hybrid goal that got them in the Champions League and I remember the way it was talked about was okay well Barca are in the Champions League that was the only sticking point of whether Sol was going to join them if he didn't join them it would probably be someone else we didn't know who it would be uh, but because Barca have qualified the Champions League thanks to that Rivaldo goal it was almost like right okay that's it and yeah obviously didn't then come to pass but I, yeah I just, just so crazy looking back at it I, I wonder I mean it's so interesting Danny because he did you know, he achieved, He left to win trophies. And he, in the four seasons he had at Arsenal, he won shut, the league, the double in 2002, the FA Cup in 2003. Invincible 2004, FA Cup 2005, Champions League final in which he scored in 2006. So from a footballing point of view, he achieved, He it, it was exactly what he wanted. But I do want, I mean, it's so interesting. And, and obviously you would have got deep into this when you interviewed him. But how much that's worth it you know the 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 pain it must have caused him and still causes him to know how many people utterly loathe you for doing what you did could be the answer could just be i didn't care i had to go and win trophies you know but he doesn't say that either to be fair but look can't deny he was a great footballer absolutely fantastic football but also of course i remember thinking that you know again the rainbow over white Hart lane there is a god isn't there because campbell left i thought i'd never recover and within a year, Ledley King was the best centre back in the in the Premier League. He just came out of nowhere. <laughs> you know, that same rainbow god said, "Here, are Dan. All right, mate. You're you're a good bloke." And he gave me Ledley King. <laughs> so you know, uh, all's well that ends well from that point of view. Listen, this is the end of this show as well. Thank you both very much. It's been absolutely, I've, I've had great fun indeed. And thank you to all of those of those who sent the questions to the Athletic. I dare say we could have made a great show without them, but it was even better because of them. Now, listen, and remind me to tell you that if you're already a subscriber to The Athletic, you can read all of our articles on Spurs, as well as the mountains of other stuff that's on the site by simply going to theathletic.com forward slash Spurs pod. And right now you can sign up for just one pound a month for six months. As a subscriber, you'll be able to ask us questions in future mailbag specials. You lucky, lucky people. And we're back on Thursday as we edge ever closer to the return of the Premier League and more of your questions. Thanks for listening. The Athletic.